Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you hear well done from the lips of the master after running the race he has marked out for you. As 2024 dawns and the rising generation leaves the influence of their homes and churches, we can expect their exposure to the internet and pluralistic culture to cause them to question the reliability of scripture, hearing things like, it's socially regressive in its views of women, homosexuality, and slavery because the writings originated from sexist, bigoted men, not from a loving God. They will likely be told to act like adults and stop viewing the Bible's fairy tales as anything more than morally uplifting stories like The Little Mermaid or The Lord of the Rings or Santa Claus. After all, according to this worldview, a story doesn't have to be true to be legitimate. Besides, insisting that Bible stories are true is divisive and intolerant of those who don't. Against this backdrop, we must help our children and grandchildren, before leaving home, realize that believing in Jesus is far different than believing in Santa Claus. This episode seeks to make clear this vital difference. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode Number 52 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Let's begin with a couple of philosophical objections to biblical faith being rooted in truth. The first is that belief doesn't have to be based upon truth. At one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world, Harvard University, students are taught that if they believe they are males in a biologically female body, they are males, and their choice must be respected or it is hate speech. This is a shocking leap into the abyss of irrationality. Transgenderism, like anorexia, is a delusion. Such a disconnect between an imposed worldview and reality is academia at its worst, since no one, including Claudia Gay, Harvard's president, actually lives her life believing that the truth of her beliefs doesn't matter. Everyone knows that when you drive through an intersection, your belief that the cars on the left and right will stop at their red light matters. If your belief is wrong, you will end up dead. It matters whether my belief that the pilot has been trained to fly my plane is true or not. My life depends upon it. The faith of all rational people is based upon evidence that their beliefs are true. That is why faith and trust are used as synonyms. We need to teach our loved ones that anyone who tries to get them to believe something that is disconnected from truth is deluded and perhaps trying to manipulate them. The second philosophical objection to biblical truth claims is the presupposition that there can't be just one true religion. How do we respond to this often heard objection to Christ's exclusivity claim? No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, we need to point out its cultural bias. Most people in the world, including many who are just as educated and intelligent as intellectuals in the West, do not hold the view that all religions are equally valid. 
As Tim Keller observes, most non-Western cultures have no problem saying that their culture and religion is best. The idea that it is wrong to do so is deeply rooted in Western traditions of self-criticism and individualism. Skeptics reflect the subjective values of their own culture when they assume that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. This objection itself reflects Western culture's bias. It is an unproved, arrogant presupposition. The truth is that the Christian faith, unlike belief in Santa Claus, is based on evidence, evidence that demands a verdict. Let's look at the evidence. First, eyewitness testimony evidence. A world that is so focused on science sometimes mistakenly forgets that science historically is not the only arbiter of truth. Since the beginning of legal systems, eyewitness testimony has been admitted as proof sufficiently valid to cause one convicted by it to lose his life. The cornerstone of the Christian faith is this kind of proof, the eyewitness testimony of those who saw the risen Jesus proving his resurrection. In the classic arrogance that accompanies many academic elites today, it has been argued that the Jesus story is a legend, mythology perpetuated by dishonest, power-hungry ecclesiastical leaders. This thesis lies behind books and movies like The Da Vinci Code. The real historical Jesus, they argue, was a charismatic teacher of justice and wisdom who provoked opposition leading to his execution. After his death, different parties and viewpoints emerged among his followers about who he was. Some claimed he was divine and risen from the dead, and others that he was just a human teacher who lived on spiritually in the hearts of his disciples. After a power struggle, the Divine Jesus Party won and created texts that promoted its views. They allegedly destroyed all the alternative texts showing us a different sort of Jesus. Recently, some of these suppressed alternative views of Jesus have come to light, they point out, like the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas and Judas. But there are numerous reasons for rejecting such faulty reasoning. The strongest is that the timing of New Testament documents is way too early for the Gospels to be legends. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written between 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. We know that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in the spring of A.D. 53, 54, or 55. In chapter 15, verse 3, Paul gave the tenets of Christian belief, which had already been circulating for years. Those words, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is historical proof that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within the lifetimes of hundreds who had been present at the events of his ministry. You can't write that in a document designed for public reading unless there really are witnesses whose testimony agreed and who would confirm what the author said. 
Luke states that he got his account of Jesus' life from eyewitnesses also, who were still alive. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Mark says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. There is no reason to include the name unless the readers know or have access to them. It was not only Christ's supporters who were still alive when the New Testament books were written. Also still alive would be many bystanders, officials, and enemies of Christ who witnessed these events. They would have been ready to challenge any legendary fictions perpetrated on the masses. As Tim Keller observes, logic tells us for a highly altered, fictionalized account of an event to take hold in the public imagination, it is necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and grandchildren all be long dead. They must be off the scene so that they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments or falsehoods of the story. The Gospels were written far too soon for this to occur. Next, let's consider the historic accuracy of the documents as evidence for the truth of Christianity. Let's consider four ways to test the accuracy of any document, including today's Bible. The test examines the transmission of the original writings to the present day by evaluating the quantity and quality of manuscripts, time span between events and the manuscripts, dating of the manuscripts, and archaeological evidence to support its historical accuracy. Consider first the quantity of manuscripts. In the case of the Old Testament, there is a small number of Hebrew manuscripts because the Jewish scribes ceremonially burned imperfect and worn manuscripts. The number of New Testament manuscripts, however, is unparalleled in ancient literature. In museums around the world, there are 24,000 ancient manuscripts of portions of the New Testament. By comparison, the number of manuscripts of portions of the writings of Plato is seven. The writings of Aristotle is 49. The second highest number of manuscripts behind the New Testament's 24,000 is 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. With so many copies of the New Testament manuscript in hand, we have a pretty good idea of what the original said. Next, consider the quality of manuscripts. Ken Boa and Larry Moody in their book, I'm Glad You Ask, say the entire scribal process was specified in meticulous detail to minimize the possibility of even the slightest error. The number of letters, words, and lines were counted, and the middle letters of the Pentateuch and of the Old Testament were determined. As a result of this extreme care, the quality of the manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible surpasses all other ancient manuscripts. The 1947 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in caves near the Qumran community excavation revealed an intact copy of the Book of Isaiah, scientifically dated to about 100 BC. These scrolls contain fragments of 38 out of the 39 Old Testament books. Regarding the New Testament, the sheer quantity of manuscripts do display various copying errors, but they enable scholars to have tremendous certainty about 99.5% of the original text, and no variant readings are significant enough to call into question any of the teachings of the New Testament. 
Third, consider the time span of manuscripts. Apart from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest text of the Old Testament is 895 AD due to the systematic destruction of prior texts by the Masoretic scribes. We now have some New Testament manuscripts dated from the first century and most of the New Testament from the second century. So the time span between the actual writing of the Gospels or Paul's letters and our oldest manuscripts is less than 75 years in many cases. The contrast to the other best-known ancient writings is enormous. For example, the span between Homer's writings of the Iliad and the oldest manuscript copy we have is 500 years. Between Plato's writing and our oldest manuscript is 1,200 years. Between Aristotle's life and our oldest manuscript is 1,400 years. The historic evidence that our current Bible is what was originally written is unsurpassed by any other historical or religious book in the world. Or consider the archaeological evidence. Because the historical narratives of the Bible are so specific, its details are often open to archaeological investigation. And today, let me tell you, archaeology is the Bible's best friend, having proven the accuracy of the biblical writers time and time and time again. It wasn't so originally. Consider a couple examples. Nazareth. For years, skeptics asserted that the village from which Luke tells us Mary and Joseph came never existed. But archaeologists then found a list in Aramaic, the tongue of Jesus, of 24 families of priests dispersed after the fall of the temple in 70 AD. And one of the families was listed as having dispersed to Nazareth. We now know where Nazareth synagogue was located. I myself stood at the cliffs over which the elders wanted to throw Jesus. Or consider Herod's slaughter of Bethlehem's children. Skeptics argued that this slaughter couldn't have happened since the Roman historian Josephus never mentioned it. However, such reasoning reveals its bias. What history does prove is that Herod was so insecure about threats to his throne that he murdered his own wife, two of his sons, and many others. In other words, Herod's ruthless treatment of any threats to his throne is well documented, which is exactly what the story in Matthew recounts. In fact, Herod's ruthless insecurity was so well known that Caesar Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his wife because Herod tried to please the Jews by keeping their dietary laws. Josephus' failure to mention the slaughter of the children in an obscure village was very likely because Herod's elimination of threats was so common. Or consider another example, Luke's description of the census. Luke's narrative claims that Mary and Joseph were required to go to Bethlehem for the census conducted while Quirinius was the governor and also during the reign of Herod the Great. But we know that Herod died eight years before Quirinius became the ruler of Syria. So skeptics claimed Luke was wrong. But archaeologists discovered a coin with the name of Quirinius on it, revealing that Quirinius was proconsul of Syria during part of the time that Herod the Great ruled. There were two proconsuls of Syria named Quirinius. Dr. Luke got it right. Or consider Luke 3.1. 
In a similar incident, Luke was scoffed at because he mentioned a man named Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene. But historians know that Lysanias wasn't a Tetrarch, and he didn't rule over Abilene, but over an area named Chalcis, and it was 50 years earlier. Then archaeology stepped in. An inscription was found from the time of Tiberius, that's 14 to 37 AD, which names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abilene near Damascus. Luke's accuracy was confirmed again. In fact, Luke's careful geography was astounding. One prominent archaeologist carefully examined Luke's references in his Gospel and the Book of Acts to 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands. He found not a single mistake, but accuracy after accuracy after accuracy. The historic reliability of the Old and New Testament documents is unsurpassed by any other documents of antiquity. As we continue to look at the evidence for the Christian faith, we remember that Christianity claims that the Christ child was God himself incarnate. And what about the profile evidence? What did Jesus' profile look like? Both prosecution and defense attorneys seek to create a profile in the mind of the judge or jury that corresponds or does not correspond to the suspect's behavior. How does Jesus' life give evidence that he was Emmanuel, God himself, in the flesh? Well, one could point to his miracles or his resurrection, which had never happened before. But here are some perhaps more striking ways that Jesus fits the profile of God. First, he forgives sins. A human can forgive sins committed against him, but only God can forgive sins in general, which are committed against God. In Luke 5:17, Jesus saw a paralyzed man being lowered through the ceiling, and he said, "Man, your sins are forgiven you." The next verse says, "And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, "Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Remember, Jesus was put on the cross for blasphemy, claiming to be God. Jesus also claimed to be sinless. It's true that some people's character is such that they are called righteous in Scripture. For example, this list includes Job, it includes Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth in the Christmas story, and Joseph of Nazareth. But we have no record of them saying, as Jesus did with a straight face, which of you can convict me of sin? If I said that, all the hands of my family members would instantly shoot right up. Holiness is an attribute of God alone. And then when it comes to the profile of Jesus, we note that he claimed to be the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite term for himself was taken from an obscure text in Daniel, yet it was loaded with significance. That text says, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. This portrait of the coming messianic king reveals that the son of man is from heaven. And then, of course, Jesus claimed directly to be God, and his enemies put him to death for it. He said, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. He said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
John 14, 9. He said, before Abraham was, I am, a claim to be Yahweh, which is what I am means. He claimed authority over the Sabbath, Mark 2, verses 23 through 28. Neither Moses, Muhammad, Gautama Buddha, nor Joseph Smith claimed to be God, but Jesus of Nazareth did. That fact makes a watershed difference between Christianity and other religions. Furthermore, Jesus can't be a great moral teacher if he was mistaken or lied about the chief topic of his teaching, his own identity. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, you can shut Jesus up for a fool, or you can spit at him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come up with any nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Then let's finally look at what might be called the fingerprint evidence. Jesus and Jesus alone has matched over 20 very specific prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. The mathematical probability of any one person meeting all these criteria is infinitesimal. Let's just note again some of those specific prophecies. He would be born of a virgin. He would be the Son of God. Hebrews 1.5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, citing the fulfillment of Psalm 2.7. He would be the seed of Abraham. Genesis twenty two eighteen. In your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. He would be from the tribe of Judah. Micah 5, 2. But you, among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. He would be from the line of Jesse. Isaiah 11.1, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He would be from the house of David, Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. His birth would cause weeping in Ramah, Jeremiah 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. He would be preceded by a messenger, Isaiah 43. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The child of Elizabeth and Zechariah would prepare his way, Luke 1, 68 and following. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He would be called a Nazarene, Matthew two twenty three. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. His ministry would be in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The truth is that unlike the beliefs of many around us, the Christian faith is not a leap into irrationality, into a fantasy world contradicted by evidence. The evidence for the truth of the Bible and Christianity is staggering. Only something as powerful as sin could cause anyone to deny it. Apart from God's grace to us, the sin that darkens human understanding would still be blinding us. So out of gratitude, may we enter 2024 determined to live a life worthy of our calling out of darkness into the light. To summarize this episode, the rising generation is heading into a world so steeped in subjectivism that young women are hearing that by rejecting their created womanhood and identifying as male, they become male. The more such nonsense prevails in the culture, the more the sons and daughters of Christ's church will be tempted to think that the Christian belief in the Bible and resurrection of Christ is credulity. You have your truth. I have my truth. But in reality, every human lives his life based upon assertions about reality, the truth of which matters. When my mechanic tells me my brakes are fixed, I drive out believing the truth that the brakes work, or I would not drive away. A belief that is not based upon evidence that the assertion is true is folly. This episode attempts to equip us to assure our loved ones that anyone he or she meets who suggests that the Christmas story is a sweet childhood story, the truth of which in history doesn't really matter, is ignorant. The Bible and Christianity claim that the Christ child was Emmanuel, God himself with us, supported by the facts of history. The claims of Jesus to be God are historically irrefutable. That doesn't prove he was, but the claims are irrefutable. Being circulated during the same generation and same location where Jesus lived and made such statements. The accuracy of the gospel writers has been proved over and over again. The accounts themselves were based on eyewitness testimony. The certainty that the current text of the Bible accurately reflects that eyewitness testimony has been verified like no historical manuscripts in the world have been. In quantity, quality, closeness of documents to the events they portrayed, and through the discoveries of archaeology. In addition, what would be called the profile evidence marshaled to determine whether or not Jesus' behavior matched his claim to be God is clear. He claimed to be able to forgive sins, to be sinless, and to be the divine Son of Man in Daniel, a divine being. And of course, to be the only way to God, which is utterly logical since by definition, God would need to be the one to determine how anyone comes into his holy presence. If that were not enough, we looked at just a bit of the fingerprint evidence, the fulfillment of prophecies about Jesus' birth and ministry. Just as fingerprints match only one person, the fulfillment of messianic prophecies matches only one person. His name is Jesus. For further prayer for thought, number one, how would you answer the objection, I can't believe in Christianity because I can't believe God would be so narrow-minded that only one religion could be right? See your show notes for additional questions. 
Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. The link is also in your show notes. Next week, we continue our Advent series, Learning from the Actors in the Christmas Drama, by taking a look at Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That term is loaded with implications for being Jesus' disciple, which we will examine as we get ready to begin a new year. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. <music>